Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today, I am joined by Dr. T. Sean Lynch, who is a senior staff surgeon and vice chairman of academic affairs for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. He is also the head team physician for the Detroit Lions. Dr. Lynch was a senior author of the article titled, Machine Learning Model Identifies Preoperative Opioid Use, Male Sex, and Elevated Body Mass Index as Predictive Factors for Prolonged Opioid Consumption Following Arthroscopic Meniscal Surgery, which was published in the June 2023 edition of Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Lynch, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Dr. Spiker. I'm glad to be able to finally join. I've seen uh, so much of this on social media, so I'm glad I finally get to join uh, join in all the fun. So, Tishan, can you start by telling us more about you and your practice? Yeah, so um, as as you said, I'm a senior staff surgeon here at Henry Ford Health. I started here in the fall of 2021, after I had spent seven years at Columbia in New York City, um, after spending uh, the pandemic with a two-year-old in, the, in a two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, it certainly provided some time for reflection of my wife and I, and we're both from the Midwest, and uh, it was a great opportunity to be able to come back uh, closer to home and be near family and friends, and uh, we've been very happy with where, uh, in terms of our professional moves, as well as personally speaking as well, and and, and part of the, the recruitment was uh, the head team doctor for the Detroit Lions, which at the time did not seem terribly attractive uh, to those from the outside. But uh, as we're on the brink of the playoffs here, after a few years of hard work, it's uh, certainly been something pretty exciting to be a part of. So, And then in terms of my clinical practice, um, I specialized predominantly in lower extremity sports, so both uh, hip and knee uh, issues. Um, I would probably tell you that my practice is probably 60 to 70% hip and then 30 to 40% knee. Great. Well, yeah, thank you, Tishan. And nothing against New York. I, I know um, we both really enjoyed our time in New York, but there's definitely something about that Midwest that uh, <laughs> that Midwesterners appreciate. Um, same here as I moved back to Wisconsin. Yes. And so do you think you had anything to do with the the success of the Lions? Oh my gosh. Fortuitous. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, I think that there's a lot of magic in the building right now, and it really comes from uh, our front office, our head coach, as well as the ownership, and it kind of trickles on down, and I'm just happy to be part of the ride. You know, uh, football is, you know, a lot of strategy, a little bit of luck, and uh, good health, and we've been blessed with all of them this year, so I would say that uh, I'm just a, I'm, I'm just a happy traveler in this experience. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the paper we're discussing today. Can you start by giving us a background on why you and your research team wanted to look at these clinical questions uh, that you specifically asked in this paper? So I would tell you that, you know, um, as we've all become hyper aware of uh, the utility of opioids and its uh, effects, not only, you know, in the short term, but also in the long term, you know, this is something that at Henry Ford, we have been looking at uh, for almost 10 years now, and we've created some new multimodal pain pathways to minimize the amount of pain medication that we're giving patients, um, as well as try to identify patients prior to surgery who uh, might be ones that we need to provide a little more effort in terms of trying to manage their pain or manage their expectations when it comes to pain. You know, it, it's funny, you know, when I was, you know, I can re- I can recall 15 years ago when I was doing my uh, 
sub eyes, um, I would kind of help prepare the prescriptions um, for, you know, whatever service I was on. And I just remember talking to the residents, asking them like, you know, how many medication or how many pills should we be providing? And I, I would just recall distinctly, like, just are the right amount so that we never have to hear that they're having pain. And that was at that time, you know, in the mid to early or mid to late uh, 2000s, you know, pain was the fifth vital sign. And that was something that, you know, hospitals were being rated on was how much pain that patients were having. So it was kind of, yes, whatever we needed to do to make sure that they didn't have pain. And then, that, you know, fast forward, you know, to about 10 years ago when I was doing my sports fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, um, you know, in Northeast Ohio, there, you know, was a huge epidemic of opioid. Uh, there was an opioid crisis in that area. And we became more aware of it and trying to make sure that we try to do our best efforts to curtail that because as uh, orthopedic surgeons, we certainly do contribute a good amount uh, to that issue. Um, but I think right now we're trying to kind of work backward or we're trying to reverse that uh, effect from, you know, 15, 20 years ago. when that was such a big uh, emphasis uh, from a hospital level to look at them. So um, it's been a, it's been a big point of emphasis with the, our sports division here at Henry Ford. And we try to create different pathways. We've tried to look at patients to identify and we've looked at this across, you know, both shoulder as well as knee issues and, and looking at meniscal surgery, which is probably one of the more common surgeries that we do. Uh, this seemed to make the most sense uh, as we are uh, trying to uh, curtail this, uh, these issues. Yeah, an incredibly important topic. And so I'm, I'm very glad. And one of the reasons I asked you to be a guest on the podcast was to further discuss this. So thanks for doing the work and for taking the time to talk to us. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to use machine learning to answer these questions that you had. And then for those of us who aren't uh, up to date on machine learning, can you tell us how that differs from the standard statistical methods that we've been using in the past? Yeah, so, you know, to put it simply, in terms of machine learning, there, there's a few different kind of homes of thought when it comes to doing that. Um, and in a nutshell, this allows for us to be able to provide some objective measures that the patients have and to see if there's any correlation between any of these objective measures for any given thing. And so in this particular instance, we were able to put in, you know, several different uh, variables uh, that we were concerned about. And we were able to simply take a look and, you know, identify which variables would be kind of considered at-risk variables. And in, in this uh, population, you know, we looked at over 500 patients who had meniscal surgery over about four or five years at our institution. And kind of the, the main findings that we found were males, uh, those with uh, higher BMIs, um, individuals who had had uh, previous opioid use prior to surgery, which I think is becoming more and more common uh, or is a variable that we're starting to notice uh, as a more common variable that is at risk uh, for this population. Um, and then those who had, uh, you know, meniscal repairs as opposed to meniscectomies. And surprisingly enough, um, you know, there was the hypothesis that those individuals who had higher levels of articular cartilage damage in the form of osteoarthritis uh, would also kind of fall into this category. And, and that was actually not true. So tell us a little bit about your typical conversation with patients who you indicate for a straightforward knee arthroscopy in clinic and, you know, either a planned partial meniscectomy or a potential repair. How do you prepare your patients for what to expect in that post-operative period? And then um, 
you know, what they can expect as far as their return to activity? So I'll tell you, probably my 10 years of practice, it's been a very, I've noticed a very distinct change in that conversation from, you know, when I started practice 10 years ago to where we're at today, you know, at that point, you know, when I first was coming out, um, patients were very concerned about pain. They wanted to make sure they weren't in pain. And I think, you know, a lot of the highlights that we've seen in mass media as a result of this opioid crisis, now patients don't want any pain medication. Um, And so it actually makes the conversation a lot easier uh, for us. But, you know, with this multimodal uh, program that we've put together, you know, we do give a combination of some anti-inflammatory, some Tylenol. Uh, We do utilize some gabapentin. And then we will give them, you know, kind of a handful of pain medication um, just so that they have something in the event that they they need to, you know, u- utilize it. But um, as we have been capturing our patients postoperatively, I would tell you, particularly for a uh, meniscal procedure, um, patients are not utilizing more than probably a few pills of their pain medication. And they usually do it the first day just because they don't know what to expect. And then once they make it through that first 24 hours, they're usually usually transitioning to uh, the combination of the Tylenol and the anti-inflammatories. That's a, it's a really uh, interesting observation that you made. And I completely agree with you. I've had a very similar uh, observation as far as patients previously um, very fearful of pain and over the years now, exactly as you said, taking an opposite approach and fearful of the pain medications. And um so, you know, I totally agree that we're we're potentially dealing with a, a different environment. Um, what do you typically give for a post-op opioid prescription after knee arthroscopy now, say, versus five or 10 years ago? Yeah, so I, I think probably when I first came out, I probably would have given anywhere between 25 to 30. Um, uh, usually Norco is the medication uh, that I utilize just because it's a combination of Tylenol and, and the narcotic, um, but a com- uh, somewhere between 25 to 30. Um, and now I think we are giving uh, about 10. And most of the time we have the patients bring their medication back once they are done so that we can then work with our pharmacy colleagues to dispose of them properly. Um and I'm even thinking about bringing that number down just a little bit more as well, too. It's, you know, it's been a, kind of just a, a fascinating evolution um, in a very short period, of, relatively short period of time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I I was uh, recently at an um, international meeting and was speaking with some of our uh, international sports colleagues. And it's really interesting how our prescribing habits here in the U.S. are completely different than in other places in the world. And um, in Europe, where I was speaking to these colleagues, for example, after knee arthroscopies, after even hip arthroscopies, which is another procedure we both perform, they don't give any narcotic medications. Yes. Um, so, so I think you're you're definitely your thought process and mine are very, are very similar. We're trying to find ways in which we can potentially uh, mirror those uh, prescribing practices in Europe. But what do you think about those differences? You know, what have um, what have you thought about why those differences are in place and how we might make them more similar. Yeah, you know, I I think some of it is probably, I want to figure out how I put this tactfully. Um, You know, I I feel like sometimes in our culture, uh, our ability to want to deal with pain, uh, people don't want to do that. Um, 
And as a result, will you know do what they need to to minimize that. While in other cultures, you know, pain is kind of you know kind of assumed to be part of the surgical process, and it's going to be okay. You just got to make it through that those you know first forty eight to seventy two hours. Um, I'll tell you the population that I have in uh, the population that I have noticed um, that utilizes the least is kind of the you know, the early 20s to teenage population. And some of that is the the parents' influence, but also the kids themselves are so fearful of everything that they've heard that they're the ones that are taking the least amount of medications. I'm not sure if you've uh, observed that um, uh, in Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, they're the ones that I, like, they bring back their medication and I just, you know, it, you can tell that they don't, haven't really even opened it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, it's interesting and, and you're exactly right. I, I do believe it's a, a cultural thing, but I think the um, the good news is that studies like your your paper that we're discussing today uh, and other literature is being published, you know, demonstrating that, um, that, you know, perhaps we can help our patients take less narcotic medication and then maybe in the future we can hope to eliminate it completely if that's possible. Um, so, so here's to hoping. All right. So you mentioned some of the results that you and your team found a little bit earlier. Uh, for example, you found in your analysis that your average patient age in your study cohort was about 51 years old. About 95% of the percent of the patients were undergoing partial meniscectomy. 5% had meniscal repairs. Uh, 5% were undergoing revision meniscectomy. And then you mentioned this earlier that those with preoperative opioid use, male gender, and increased BMI and meniscus repair were, were factors associated with opioid use for greater than one month after surgery. So can you perhaps delve into each of these findings a little bit more and tell us your thoughts or your conclusions based on those findings uh, on, on why you think that might have been what you discovered? You know, first and foremost, I think probably, you know, when it comes to the the gender issue, it's clearly because the female gender is tougher than the males. Um, oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that the first and foremost, uh, I, I want to make sure I come out with that one. Uh, the BMI part, you know, I'm not sure if I have a you know good sense of that, but I will I will tell you, you know, it was interesting. <clears throat> I'll, I'll come back to answer this in one second. Um, you know, that we had, you know, this was like over a four year period, you know, from I think 2013 to 2017. And, you know, 5% of those surgeries were meniscal repairs. And I would, I would be very, we're kind of going back and looking at some of this data now, more recent data now, because um, uh, the number of meniscal repairs that I do now compared to, you know, when I was first out in practice, I probably do more meniscal repairs than anything else at this point. Some of it is our ability to be able to fix it with some of the new technology that's out there, but also the recognition of how important the meniscus is. Um, uh, so I thought that that was an interesting finding in terms of the number of meniscal repairs that were going on. But obviously, you know, when you're doing meniscal repairs, whether you're doing inside out, outside in, or using all inside techniques, you know, that that is painful. You're you're going through that capsule. You're violating uh, the intraarticular knee and going into the extraarticular knee, depending upon the devices that you are utilizing. And so that makes sense that, or at least to me, that there there's more pain. I think the one thing that I was kind of surprised about uh, was the articular cartilage findings. You know, if you had you know, more arthritic findings that you weren't having more pain. I think that's a population that is kind of a, 
I, I feel like whether it's the hip or the knee or the shoulder, when you're scoping those individuals, I feel like the, the arthroscopy process itself can sometimes create this biologic cascade that can sometimes accelerate uh, their arthritis or accelerate their pain that they're experiencing. So I, I was a little surprised uh, with that finding, to be honest with you. I agree, Tishan. I was also surprised by that. I, I I absolutely see the same thing in my patients. I think perhaps more so in our knee arthroscopy patients if they have underlying arthritis. And I always tell patients my hypothesis is that, you know, anytime you have knee surgery, it shuts down the quads and that could potentially put more force across their already arthritic knee. And maybe that's why it flares it up. But that is pretty surprising. I, I would have thought that they would have had more pain requiring more pain medication, but apparently they don't. You know, I, I was equally surprised. So, and you know, it, I, I hate for us to jump off the knee for a second, but I know sometimes with the hips, when you find that when you get a similar population, it just, you know, and this is a population as you, you and I both know, and hopefully the, the listeners, uh, uh, if you're not tuned to it, like this population where, you know, if you think, oh, you go in there and clean up just like a knee or shoulder, that hip population does not respond well uh, when there's already articular cartilage damage. You can almost, you know, you, you'll send them into a pathway that leads them to an early hip replacement. So you almost try to avoid those patients with a 10 foot pole when it comes from surgical indications. Yeah, absolutely. That is totally okay to jump from the knee to the hip. So yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I'm on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, that kind of leads into um, my next couple of questions. Um, you know, what are some of the other factors that you think in this study in particular, you might not have been able to account for that could have potentially influenced the, the amount of opioid used after surgery? I mean, do you think surgical technique plays into this? And then how applicable are these findings to other arthroscopic surgeries, such as in the joints of the hip and the shoulder? I, I think uh, since I was not uh, here at this time well, while this was going on, but we certainly utilized this data, there's you know certain surgical techniques that were probably being utilized that could have contributed to some of that. Um, but I think in terms of extrapolating to other joints, I feel like the, there's consistent variables, whether it's the hip, knee, or shoulder that you, that we're starting to see when it comes to these opioid consumption studies that, or even their post-operative, uh, how they do with their PROs afterwards as well too. And in the hip world, patients who are on opioids prior to surgery, we know that they have worse outcomes compared to those who are not. And I think that this common theme, uh, the common theme that we're seeing with how patients are doing with their knee in terms of being able to predict who's going to be on opioids, you can probably more or less, you know, utilize these exact same variables and probably extrapolate very easily to the shoulder or the hip as well. I agree. I mean, I think it's, yeah, we, even though as, um, as with you, my practice is mostly hip and knee, and I think they're very different arthroscopic surgeries, but there's so much uh, that we find uh, related to these research questions or clinical questions that that I do agree are applicable to multiple different joints, including those very disparate hip and knee joints. So what are your thoughts on how these findings will change your practice, if at all? Or is this something that was confirmatory for you in the knee and then, you know, as well in the hip in the surgery? Yes. Well, you know, I would certainly say that it has been confirmatory, uh, at least in terms of, you know, whatever, you know, level 10 evidence that I was anecdotal stuff that I was thinking prior to. Um, but I think, you know, where it comes more helpful is these patients, whether and again, I kind of utilize whether it's a hip or a knee or shoulders that I'm operating on, you know, if they kind of fall into this category, you know, I, I will spend more time 
with these patients when we talk about the surgical procedure and we talk about what to expect post-surgically as well too, um, particularly those patients who are on opioids prior to surgery. Um, I've partnered with uh, some of our anesthesia pain colleagues for those patients who are on significant pain medication prior to surgery, and those are few and far between, uh, but we're really trying to do everything we can to help support our patients uh, that we're going to be operating on to make sure that we put them in the best possible position to have a good outcome after surgery and not to be weighed down by uh, whatever, you know, whatever their previous opioid issues are. And sometimes it's as easy as trying to wean them off their medication. And we have some really good uh, specialists here that help us with that. Uh, sometimes we have to have patients um, see some of uh, see uh, someone from our pain psychology team um, so that they can so that we can kind of work through this together because sometimes there's other issues that are in play when it comes to uh, opioids. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it kind of comes down to treating the whole patient. Um, yes, you know, it, you know, we always kind of there's always that joke in orthopedics, you know, bone broken me fix. Um, or in this case, you know, meniscal injured uh, me fix. But I, I think sometimes there's more to it than that. And sometimes we have to kind of look at it, uh, look at the patient uh, from a comprehensive perspective and make sure we're doing everything we can to put them in the best possible position. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it brings to question whether there are modifiable factors. So you found that these factors were related to or greater than one month opioid consumption after surgery. And so you're exactly right. If you can modify that preoperative opioid use, minimize it, or per potentially that increased BMI. So if we can decrease the BMI, will those factors then, you know, help uh, prevent prolonged usage of opioids after surgery? That's a that's a great question. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, as our efforts are to continue to curtail this, I think we're going to be able to refine uh, re refine those variables, refine our questions, and better serve our patients moving forward. Well, thanks, Tishan. Um, this has been a great discussion. And again, thank you so much for performing this research and uh, continuing to help decrease the opioid use in sports medicine. Um, do you have any final thoughts uh, before we end our discussion tonight? Oh, I appreciate the, the opportunity here to be able to share all the great things that we're doing here. Uh, I, I really look forward to seeing what happens over the next five to 10 years. It, it's amazing. We're where things have gone since I was a fellow to where we are today. And I, I really do think, you know, within this time period, that being the next 10 years, uh, I think we're going to be able to have methods to be able to treat our patients uh, with no opioids. And I'm really hopeful that we'll, we'll be there sooner rather than later. So I appreciate this opportunity here today and hopefully uh, get the word out and hopefully get more people motivated to look at this issue. Thanks again. My pleasure. Dr. Lynch's article titled Machine Learning Model Identifies Preoperative Opioid Use, Male Sex, and Elevated Body Mass Index as Predictive Factors for Prolonged Opioid Consumption Following Arthroscopic Meniscal Surgery can be found online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you.